Good evening, or at whatever time you're listening, be opening your Bible, please, to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. About a year ago at Laurel Heights, I delivered a sermon from 2 Kings chapter 5 about Naaman the leper. Since then, it was brought to my attention there is a part of that narrative we may not talk about, but it needs our attention. So I'll go through the passage with you tonight much as I have before. But we will address a part of it that needs attention, heretofore not covered by me. I'm going to take us through the text, pausing at various places, and then we'll drive right into that question, and of course, we will conclude with applications. Second Kings chapter 5. This begins with a very impressive resume. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. The writer gathers together a report of what Naaman was known for, and this would have made a great resume back in that time. Military service was honored in the nation where you served and to some extent in other nations where your fame had been reported. It says Naaman was great and in high favor. Though he was not a Jew, it says the Lord had given victory to Syria where Naaman was known as a mighty man of valor. This was Naaman's resume and he would have been considered a successful man. However, you noticed in the last phrase of verse 1, he was a leper. Success, high favor, and celebrity status has never kept anyone from disease. A valiant soldier with a good resume, but he had leprosy. Leprosy in the Bible encompassed a variety of fatal, wasting skin diseases that slowly disabled and disfigured the victim. It was much like what we dread and hate so much today when we hear the word cancer. Your body, with leprosy, went through a slow-motion explosion. Your body would fall apart in stages. Eventually, death was considered a relief. Wealth or reputation couldn't heal you, no matter how many victories a soldier won on the battlefield. This battle, with leprosy, would be lost. Success, pursued with impressive energy, could not overcome the consequences of this disease. Next, the writer brings into the picture a little slave girl in verse 2. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. The writer is reporting something very common in ancient battles. The victors would claim not only the spoils of war, the physical treasures and valuables, they would take people, especially young women who would become household slaves. So this was an Israelite girl who was now pressed into service at the home of Naaman the leper. Apparently, she held no grudge or harbored no resentment. There is evidence in verse 3 that she really cared about her master. She said to Naaman's wife, 
would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. If you were Naaman, what would you do upon hearing this? Let's go. How quickly can we get there? How much will it cost? Tell me anything I need to do and know to get there. And it starts out like that. Naaman goes to his superior in verses 4 and 5. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. As we expect, Naaman packs. He goes to get a letter from the king, loads up money and clothing. Next, he arrives and presents his letter of recommendation to the king of Israel, and it doesn't go well. Verses 6 and 7, he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which reads, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Well, this captures the tone of Naaman's visit with the king of Israel. The king of Israel reacted, Who do you think I am? Am I God? It seems at this point like everything is falling apart. But then this happened in verses 8 through 10. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. So put yourself in Naaman's skin. If you really believe the prophet Elisha and you are sick and tired of being a leper, what is your response? I will make haste. I will not sit around and visit with people. I will not procrastinate. I'm going to the Jordan. How about you? I will not put it off. I'm getting myself to the Jordan. I'm going to be immersed seven times. I'll get one of my servants to count or keep track. I don't need to know how this works. I don't care that this method seems odd to anyone. I'm going to the Jordan. I want to be free of leprosy. At this point to us, it all seems so simple. But Naaman was shocked. In fact, more than that, he was angry and went away. He thought there would be something more, maybe some ceremony, something like Harry Potter's wand. And of all things, he didn't like the choice of rivers. Listen to verses 11 and 12. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. 
Naaman was a man who all his life developed certain ways of doing things, very firm internal expectations. He would use money and drop names and apply some influence and get people in high places to write letters. This is the way life worked according to Naaman. You pull strings and pay the price and get control, and you expect great things to happen just the way you have them formed in your mind. So he turned and went off in a rage. Now, now it is good in life to have some good people around you who can reason with you and talk you out of your stubbornness. I want you to listen now to verses 13 and 14. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You can't control God, make demands of God, expect God to do things just exactly the way you have it figured out. No, you just do what God says. That's how you get to the story's good ending. Just do what is commanded. A gospel preacher over in London, David Cambridge, who posts very good remarks on Facebook, said one time, if you can understand that Naaman's dipping seven times in the Jordan River was necessary to be cleansed of his leprosy, that he was cleansed not by works but by the grace of God, according to 2 Kings 5, 1-4, then you can understand that baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sins and that one is cleansed not by works but by the grace of God. Exactly right. It's a great story. What does it tell us about God? What takeaways can we get hold of? Well, let's wait on that just a minute or two. Remember, I said there was something else in the context here that needs to be reckoned with. I want to read now from 15 down to the first part of verse 19, 2 Kings 5, 15 down to 19. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. I'm at verse 18 in Second Kings 5. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. 
What follows in this chapter about Gehazi is a clear report of greed, and he is punished for that. The part of this in verses 15 through 19 that may raise a question is Naaman asking to be forgiven in advance of his return to his country and in his function with his master in the idolatrous temple. We're going to take a moment to explore that. First, Naaman doesn't understand that when it comes to asking God for forgiveness, you cannot ask and be granted forgiveness in advance of some sin, a sin that hasn't happened yet. It doesn't work that way. You cannot be granted permission to sin before the sin is committed. There's nothing in the Bible that condones or implies that you can be granted the right to sin. So that's a starting place in dealing with this difficult text. You can't get permission to sin. Here's another way to look at that. You can't repent before the sin is committed, and forgiveness is conditioned on repentance. So this is early in Naaman's experience with God, and he doesn't understand that. Further evidence of Naaman's misunderstanding and inexperience is evidenced in his taking the soil from Israel back to Syria. Did you understand everything about God at the very beginning of your faith? Naaman, in taking, quote, holy ground, unquote, back to Syria and asking for permission to sin and be forgiven shows that he's very early in his understanding. One's understanding starts as a seed. Naaman has just received that little seed. He is just in the beginning stages of understanding what relationship with God is all about, and his words here reflect that. Now, further, uh, what this episode may hinge on is Elisha's statement, go in peace. Well, we cannot assume that statement contains permission to sin. Indeed, we've already talked about the truth that sin cannot be forgiven in advance. So we take that with us in our understanding of the phrase. I take the prophet's reply not as permission granted. When you tell someone to go, that doesn't mean you encourage them to do what they just said. So we know two things before we get into this passage. One, that idolatry is wrong. Idols are not to be worshipped. Two, no one on earth can grant anyone permission to sin or have forgiveness in advance. God is in charge of pardon, and he doesn't work that way. However, we understand go in peace cannot conflict or contradict these other truths that are very clear about sin, and about God. Therefore, I take Elisha's statement, go in peace, to be non-committal. So we've dealt with that part. Let's go back now and gather together our takeaways. Number one, what God asks of us is to trust and obey. He doesn't want to see our military record or our professional resume. He knows all about us, what we've done, good or bad. We can't bribe God with money or things as the pagans did with their imagined gods. 
We can't put God in debt to us. Instead, we will always be in debt to him who made us in his image. God sent Jesus to die on the cross, and we sing, Jesus paid it all. When we are convicted of sin and we come to the cross, we don't need to bring money, letters of recommendation, or boasting. We are sinners, and what we must do is trust and obey. There is no other way. We don't question the way God set this up. We don't try to find another way. We don't debate about baptism. We don't assess whether we like the way God set things up or not. You just do what God says. We can use this story to help people understand that their response to the gospel is just this simple. Trust and obey. In baptism and after baptism, trust and obey. Number two. Let's dig a little deeper and see in this narrative that success in various earthly pursuits provides no automatic shield against disease or sin. You cannot build a successful career from an earthly standpoint with an impressive resume and load that 401k for early retirement and have more money than you could ever spend, but still, cancer or some other disease may hit. Matthew Henry said it very well. No man's greatness or honor or interest or valor or victory can set him out of the reach of the sorest calamities of human life. There is many a sickly, crazy body under rich and glamorous clothing. And so we need to set a course in life that isn't dependent upon earthly success. Earthly success may come, but we cannot make an idol of it as I described in an earlier sermon. Trust and obey God, and that foundation prepares you for whatever may be ahead. Number three, there is a character in this story that you may have missed. We cannot leave her out. The little girl or maid who was taken captive from Israel. One verse is devoted to telling her story. She's got one verse in the Bible. Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He could cure him of his leprosy. Have you thought about how you would feel if you were taken captive, kidnapped, human trafficking, forced slavery? What would your attitude be toward your master? Resentment would be easy if this girl uh, had thought After all I've suffered, taken from my family and country, maybe this man will just die. At first, maybe a finger will fall off his hand. I would love to dance on his grave. But there's no evidence of such thoughts on the part of this slave girl. Contrary to that, there was sympathy and concern for the diseased warrior who held her. Love your enemies and pray for them, Jesus said. Some of the unsung heroes of the Bible are not described in long biographical narratives. This servant girl has one verse in the Bible, and it shows she cared. The answer came from the slave quarters. It may remind us of Christ, the ultimate example of one who was mistreated, yet that mistreatment did not keep him from caring and paying the ultimate price for those he cared for. 
Then came his apostles spreading the gospel and telling people, still today through the written word, trust and obey. I hope this has been a useful review and that you will take the lessons from the narrative into the week ahead and throughout our lives of trusting and obeying God. Thank you for listening.